you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me today on the podcast is Lauren Groff, two-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times bestselling author of three amazing novels that, frankly, everyone who works at this library is a fan of, including Fates and Furies, Arcadia, and the Monsters of Templeton, really a trailblazer in what I would consider modern literary fiction. And her latest book is called Matrix, which takes us back to the 12th century. Cast out of the royal court of Eleanor de Aquitaine, deemed too coarse and rough-hewn for marriage or courtly life, 17-year-old Marie de France is sent to England to be the new prioress of an impoverished abbey, its nuns on the brink of starvation and beset by disease. Lauren Groff here is digging into the legend of Marie de France. I guess the surface level mythology there is that she is the first woman to be a published poet, but this is her history as running, as we said, this impoverished abbey. And at first, Marie is taken aback by the severity of her new life, but as she goes from teenager into middle age, she finds focus and love in collective life with her singular and mercurial sisters. And in this crucible, Marie steadily supplants her desire for family, for her homeland, for the passions of her youth, with something new to her, which is devotion to her sisters, and a conviction in her own divine visions. And we talk about those visions with Lauren Groff. I mentioned three novels. I should mention a short story collection that Lauren Groff also released, titled Florida, which is the namesake of the state where she's currently living. She mentions that on the podcast, having been riding out quarantine in that state. But Florida, in and of itself, uh, winner of the Story Prize and a finalist for the National Book Award. And that's where we start, I guess. We all, I think, could relate to this feeling of being a bit uh, stuck, being a bit contained. Quarantine did that to all of us. How can we transcend that? How can we bloom where we are planted? So here's our chat with Lauren Groff talking about her latest Matrix. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm very well. I'm from oh, good. moderately caffeinated. How's it going? Congrats on the book. Thank you. I'm also moderately caffeinated. <laughs> uh, can we just dive right on in? Thank you for, for doing do this, it. by the way. I'm really excited. And uh, what, a, what a thrilling book. So I wanted to start. There's this saying, Lauren, that my mom has always told me, and it's bloom where you're planted. Uh, and I think that this is the ultimate bloom where you're planted story. Marie is sent to this, what seems like a dismal abbey, described almost as though it's a cold cave, inhospitable maybe, almost like a prison. Rather than wallow in resentment for her lot in life, uh, Marie responds to what's basically expected of her to to guide and heal the Abbey, but transcends even that uh, as she endures in the Middle Age. Tell us more about how Marie inspired you or just what inspired you to follow her story through this somewhat shadowy first act. That was a really brilliant proceed of what the book is. Thank you very much. I All appreciate right. it. It's like very, very good. Interviews over. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's amazing. Drop mic. Um, 
I uh, I think Marie has a great deal to do with the fact that I've been stuck in Florida for 15 years without ever having to be here. And this is something that I kept, you know, writing to myself in journals, you know, bloom where you're planted, Lauren. Um, but I also, you know, I was I was deeply interested in the idea of how one can be in a place or in a time that one has not chosen um, to see all the, um, to feel caged in by these um, people around you, by the the structures around you, the hierarchies, and still try to live as fully and um, wildly and beautifully as possible. So that that is, I think possibly, just a universal human impulse, right? To, to to try to do as best as possible with what you're given. Sure, sure. Uh, Marie is sent there and throughout, after she arrives, there are more new arrivals at this abbey. And it, it dawned on me that I had a limited perception of what an abbey is, what what nuns do. And it almost seemed like, just like Marie, so many of the, these other characters were being sent there and almost like, put there to almost to be contained in a way uh, uh but she obviously as this book demonstrates she cannot be contained was that also part of your inspiration her strength i guess her yeah absolutely i mean i do think that there were nuns who chose um, sure. convents and abbeys at the time because they had vocation right sure. and vocation is an amazing idea and something that i wanted to also explore marie does not have a vocation right she does not think of herself as a nun she never wanted to be a nun she was furious at being sort of thrown away or thrown to the dogs, as she as she calls it. Uh, yeah, and she can't be contained because she uh, is kind of arrogant in in a lot of ways. <laughs> she doesn't, you know. And and I use that as though it's a it's a word that has extraordinarily negative connotations. But I think um, people who do marvelous things in the world sometimes have to be arrogant to, in order to to make them happen. And I think this particular character possesses her arrogance um, and uses it as a form of opposition. And actually she 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 takes everything she has and pushes outward in, in order to protect the, the women that she feels like she needs to protect. Sure, sure. Again, and I can't. I came into this book having a limited view of of abbeys and and nuns. I was thinking of of piety and surf and service and community and humility, and that is also in here. But uh, Marie becomes quite uh, the strategist, I guess, and quite provocatively prioritizes um, stories and rumors and manipulation of the people's sympathies as a, as a weapon of war. And I, uh, she becomes kind of a politician. I couldn't help but start wondering what Marie would have been like in an era of social media with that at her disposal. Can you talk about this side of her, what it was like to to write the more politically minded Marie in her older age? Yeah, it was so exciting and so fun, right? I, um, I'm really, really interested in, in narratives and storytelling, especially when it does come to, to politics. Yeah. I think that, I mean, if you really think about it, even in America, in contemporary America, I think um, the the supremacy of narrative is the thing that politicians sort of are are paying into, mm -hmm. right? They're they're trying to promote their narrative mm -hmm. as the one to which people should cling. And it's so fascinating to me because I do think storytelling is the most powerful tool that we have. I mean, it's a it's a weapon as well as a gift. And Marie 
through her great intelligence, that she's very, very intelligent, and her incredible ability to observe other people sees the way that her um, her erstwhile foe friends, um, lover, um, not really, um, but beloved, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine can play around with people's expectations of her through self-mythologizing, through um, the commissioning of storytelling and the, the dissemination of stories. And she sees this and she's like, and, sh and she thinks that she could also do this too. And mm -hmm. I think that that was um, the most fun oh, yeah. thing to write about. But I also think, you know, in the age of social media, uh, if you think about the people who are famous for being famous, say the Kardashians, they are so because they are experts in narrative, mm -hmm. in being able to present themselves as one thing and then slowly tweaking that one thing over time, right? right. I mean, it's really, really extraordinary. And right. that's and that those are the people that are famous today. Those are the TikTok people. Oh yeah, absolutely. Any any DIY under the radar independent artist is always told, be your own publicist. Um, yeah. And it ties yeah, in absolutely. with that. Uh, in this book, there um, you know, forms of prayer are prominent throughout the book. Uh, a sense of community is prominent. Marie starts out very early, uh, I guess, somewhat agnostic, thinking of prayer is silly. She starts out with a, uh, a small insular social life and only one or two intense relationships. We, we, we mentioned Eleanor. Can you talk about those facets of the story? Prayer, the collective, what drew you to them, to life in the Abbey? What was it like tracking the impacts that that had on Maria? And, or, or did it really affect Marie, I guess? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it does affect her very deeply, actually. I think, I don't think you, you can be exposed to 50 years of um, praying multiple times a day without being invested with the beauty of the language of the Psalms. Right. I mean, I don't know, right? I, it's, it's some of the most extraordinary language in history is in the Psalms. And I, and I find myself just deeply moved every time I go back to them. And there's some that are so fiery mm -hmm. and kind of horrendous <laughs> if you actually read them. They're very exciting. And and the um, uh, to imagine these nuns of the Middle Ages singing uh, about such things, um, it, it goes against our preconceived stereotypes of, of vocation, mm -hmm. of uh, the peaceableness of nuns, right? Because they're, they're, some of these psalms are, are very fire, very warlike, um, mm -hmm. and very bloody. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that I, I love the contradiction here. And I love that uh, Murray through just daily attention to beauty and to the people around her whom she loves very, very deeply, gets a sense of God that perhaps um, was not instilled in her through her education, which was very spotty and very, oh, you yeah. know, self, self-directed at oh, the yeah. beginning. Yeah. yeah. This becomes her family. This becomes her household. Uh, there are sisters who move on, who die, who, and, you know, and it's, it's rough living too. You do not, oh, yeah. uh, you don't sugarcoat what they have to deal with and what, and what the weather is like in England. No. And uh, there are, no antibiotics back then, nope. so people died of, you know, a rat bite. Right. <laughs> people died of yeah, horrible things. Uh, yeah. so, and I was reading this book, and, you know, I got about 30 pages in, and I almost wondered, okay, are we just going to be at the Abbey with Marie for the rest of the book? And then I was like, oh, this Eleanor person is coming back. There's something almost tantalizing about the evolving or even devolving relationships one-on-one uh, -on -one, rather than collective in this book that Marie has, whether it's with... Eleanor or whoever else. Uh, Marie has intense moments, of course, with several women, 
at the Abbey, but could you talk about crafting that? Yeah, so um, I think the idea of Eleanor is always this idea in Marie's mind from the beginning of, uh, she sort of predicates this relationship on um, ideals of courtly love, Mm -hmm. which is a narrative form at the time Really, I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine's court was the place where a lot of these ideas were codified, mm-hmm. actually, in, in reality. And um, these stories are kind of extraordinary if you go back and you, you read about them because they're kind of immoral. Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, you're, you're thinking in the, the structures and the hierarchies of the church at the time, I mean, it's all about illicit love and about um, loving people who may be married already, right? That's adultery and that's frowned on by the right. church, right? It's about um, um, longing physically for other people. It's about, so, so it's about an impossible idealized love that is almost never consummated. And so Marie internalizes these ideas in the court. And for the rest of her life, that's the way that she reads Eleanor, right? Like that's the way that she she sees her. So Eleanor comes closer at certain points through their many decades um, of frenemyship in some ways, right? Like they're, they're very, they, they love each other. They don't trust each other. Um, um, they need each other, right? I think Eleanor needs Marie because she eventually becomes ab- a very powerful abbess. I mean, at the time, an abbess um, who controls as much land as Marie controlled were baronets, right. basically. Right. And so, and baronets at the time had obligations. They they provided men for war, many men, thousands of men. They provided taxes, right? Like, so the, the nobility, even though the royalty, even though they are, you know, in the hierarchy above, were profoundly dependent also upon the baronessy um, and vice versa. So there was this, this strange give and take that's happening throughout. Marie's always learning from what um, Eleanor does and sometimes from her mistakes too, right? Mm-hmm. She, she takes those things. And even though Marie, um, her power exists within the very strict confines of the abbey and the abbey's lands, she's still... Um, sort of extends her power into the world through spies, just the way that Eleanor of Aquitaine actually did, right? And and correspondence and everything. I, I find Eleanor of Aquitaine actually historically probably one of the most fascinating humans ever, mm-hmm. ever. She's mm-hmm. just amazing. I think yeah. that you just hit three or four bullet points that completely summarizes the pure inspiration for you to write this entire book. Um, <laughs> and then I just have one more before I let you go, which is this this idea of of courtly romance and these uh, psalms and this use of language, I could quote lines to you like I'm a fan, but you're writing in this book, it seems like you are adapting that romantic language. And I just wondered what it's, I mean, it's the first thing anyone noticed when they picked this up, it, it, it feels like it was written in, in medieval times. Not exactly, but you know what I mean? You, you, uh, you adopted that voice. And I just wondered if that was arduous in the writing process or exhilarating? I wondered if you maybe started doing it so long that your text messages turned into that. What was that? <laughs> that's funny. Uh, no, it's that's the most fun for me to actually, you know, I started as a poet. I've always wanted to be a poet. Poetry rejected me. Um, but what I really love, I love just the, 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 brick making process, uh-huh. usually uh-huh. like mortaring process yep. of word and word and like trying to make, trying to say the right things in the right order, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that sort of fiddly stuff is is the most joyous process, but I don't let myself do that until the very end. 
when I do steep myself with the language of the time, try to get the rhythms, try to get the the imagery right, right? You don't want anachronisms happening in a text set sure. in the, the 12th century. And then you just go crazy, right? Like you could have so much fun. You just uh, allow yourself to sort of bathe in this language and try to take on the understanding of the world through the language, right? Absolutely. It, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the joy. Yeah, there's just a um, rhythm and a cadence and your words make noises. Marie, yeah. <laughs> Marie is described as a rustic gallows bird. And that's fun to say, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I do think, right? I think we should be having fun. Yeah. Right? This is this is not brain surgery. Yeah. Right? No, no, it, um, art should be fun for the writer as well. Heck yeah. And it is an amazing story. So I just want to thank you for the interview and bravo on this great book. Thank you so much, Lauren. I'm so grateful to you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Take care, okay? Thank you. You too. Bye. And that was our chat with Lauren Groff about her latest book, Matrix, which came out last week. Penguin Random House, a story about Marie de France taking us back to medieval times. Lots of the drama playing out in that book, very relatable to contemporary times. And written in such a flourished and majestic language, uh, that in and of itself is just wonderful and so rich to be immersed in. So. Pick up this book, Matrix, the latest from Lauren Groff. We thank her for being on the podcast. We thank you for listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org. The music you're hearing at the start and end of these episodes is by a local musician known as Sunset. And if you really dug this episode, we'd love it if you could share it to social media. Or if you're out there and you're finding our podcast, could you like it or leave a comment or share it with someone else or follow us we would appreciate it as we always want to find new listeners we'll be back next week with more thanks again for listening